0: lost my bible over here let's see here sorry getting the tech here man it's good to be with you guys isn't it yeah You know, um, before we jump into anything else, I just want to take a moment uh, to just share a couple of quick things. One, uh, be praying for Cindy McAdam. If you know Cindy, she and Jeff and uh, Hannah and Ryland used to come here before they moved off to to the Great White North uh, there in Maine. Uh, She's just going through some medical challenges. So be praying for her uh, this week. And then uh, we are delighted uh, to see that Tony made it through his surgery, and he's here with us today uh, with Paula and Michelle as well. I'm so glad to see you guys again, and uh, what a delight, and we've been praying for you and uh, with your COVID, uh, praying for you guys, so uh, just great. And then um, just, I can't tell you, we've, I think we've done this only once since COVID hit, which is our lunch right after the service today. So, you know, whatever you have planned after this, just cancel it and come on down because, man, it really really is so good to just be with one another, to break bread together, to share with one another. If you are really excited to continue talking about what uh, we bring up in the sermon today, I think was already mentioned, but just jump at that table down there, save me a seat if you want A's to the Q&A, and um, yeah, just really looking forward to that, so... Uh, as we, As we jump into our our message today, I j- just heads up what Paul has done in Romans three uh, is he 's basically given a college level crash course on salvation. So this is intro to what theologians call soteriology, intro to soteriology 101, one uh, collegiate level course on theology, but we 're going to do our best to make it as clear and plain as possible. But this is not simple stuff. It's not easy stuff. But we don't need to be afraid of that, right? Because whose mind do we have? We have the mind of Christ and the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand what it is that He wants to communicate to us through His Word. And not only that, uh, this language, though it can be difficult, it is clear. It is clear. It just sometimes takes a little work. So we're going to have some words today that might be new for you. uh, we're going to talk about this word called propitiation, which I think everyone had in their first grade spelling book, right? Propitiation. Can anyone spell propitiation? Anyone want to know? Anyone? All right. <laughs> Go to Howard if you want to know how to spell propitiation. But uh, it's just um, uh, do not be ever worried of getting... getting. Um, too deep into the scriptures that you can't find your way out. Don't ever worry about that. I challenge you and encourage you. And I want to, like, whether it's uh, something like the book of Romans or Hebrews or Isaiah or Revelation or whatever it is, don't be too afraid of any book of the Bible. You know, go get lost in it. Go get lost in the woods because here's the thing we always have a guide who will help us to find our way out. Go get lost in the woods. There's nothing more fun, in my mind, than going and having an adventure. And there's nothing better than going and having an adventure in the Word of God. So that's just my little encouragement to you to, to just jump in and go for it. Uh, today, today we're talking about a new kind of righteousness. And I know this is the moment we've all been waiting for in this series on Romans. We've talked about God's wrath. We've talked about our sin. We've talked about our failure and our inability to, to be righteous before God by our own works, by our own merit, or by the law. And now we get to this new kind of righteousness. It's, it's a new kind of righteousness because it's one different from anyone that we would have imagined on our own. You see, I think if you talk even to many Christians about what it means to be righteous, you're mostly going to get response, something along the lines of doing the right thing. And then I think if you talk to non-Christians, people who, who don't even believe in God, if you talk to them about what righteousness was, they'd probably say, doing the right thing. Right? And that makes sense. That makes sense because that's kind of the message that's, that's out there. And I have actually was listening to, you know, every once in a while I accidentally flip my radio to the AM channel, you know. I don't know if anyone's accidentally done that before. <laughs> and there was this sermon on this sermon from a guy talking, uh, and he was just uh, uh, talking about righteousness. And it was one of those old sermons. Uh, it, was, it was, I don't know if you guys uh, are familiar with any of these folks, but like to me, it, it's, it's the a.m. crackle, but the guy's got that voice, and it's always southern. He always talks about the Lord like this, and he says, thus saith the Lord, and God, you know, he's reading from the old King James, right? I kind of love those old sermons, but I just it stood out to me immediately that his entire point was, if you want to be in relationship with the Lord, you need to get your life right. You've got to get your life right to be in relationship with the Lord. And I wanted to scream at the radio. I wanted to scream at the radio and say, no. You'll never get your life right until you come to the Lord. And even then, you still won't get it right. But praise the Lord, Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ did get it right. In any translation. So that's where we're going today. That's what it's all about. That's the big picture. So don't get lost in the weeds, but we are going a little bit into the weeds. Because these are not not the kind of weeds that keep us from the Lord. These are the the kind of details and and, uh, nuances that actually help us to fall more in love with Jesus if we let them. So, Bibles, Romans 3, verse 21. Let's open them up. And I'm just going to start with the first verse. Paul says this, but now, he's contrasting the type of righteousness he's talked about before. He's saying you can't do it by works, you can't do it by the law, you can't do it by your, your, um, uh, f- for, for the Jewish people, you can't do it because of your, the legacy of your, your forefathers, you can't do it through circumcision, you can't do it through any of that stuff. But, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, we've actually gone through quite a few weeks in Romans, and we have yet to really define righteousness. And I just said what we often think it is. But last week, we talked about how righteousness is more of a relational word than it is a legal word. It has, of course, its legal elements, components. Um, You know, for us in our modern-day world, this would be the equivalent of a judge saying to a defendant, not guilty. Not guilty. But in the ancient world, in the Hebrew mind, in the Old Testament, and in the people of God, the word righteousness has strong relational overtones. It's a, word, it's a word that basically means being in right relationship with. So if you're righteous before God, that means you're in right relationship with God. And I talked last week about how, from God's perspective, God is righteous, and when you look at the Old Testament, how it talks about God's righteousness, it almost always talks about his righteousness in relationship to him being faithful to his own covenant. God is righteous because he takes the people out of Egypt. God is righteous because he uh, receives the sacrifices of his people. God is righteous because when he kicks the people out of the land, like he said he would, he brings them back like he said he would. He's faithful to his promises. And then the Bible says we need to be righteous as God is righteous. And it means we need to be faithful to that covenant too. Now, here's the thing. We're not going to get into all this today. But in the covenant God made with Moses, the covenant said, if you do these good things, then I'll bless you. If you do these bad things, then I'll curse you. But the covenant that God makes with you and me through Jesus Christ is simply this. If you trust in my son, I'll treat you like a son or daughter yourself. That's the covenant. That's it. He doesn't say, if you do X, Y, Z, then I'll bless you. Right? He simply says, if you're a person who's trusting my son, then you get all the blessings. And we're going to see this played out. Because righteousness is about being in right relationship with God. Now, here's the thing. It's really not just that the Jewish or early Gentile Christians in Rome didn't understand that. They did. They, they were steeped in this concept of righteousness. But they thought that this righteousness, this being in right relationship with God, this being faithful to the covenant meant being obedient to the law. But then Paul says this, Uh, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. That structure of that uh, language there, um, in English we translate this, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, right? But in Greek, it just says, apart, law, righteousness. We don't do this in English, but we kind of do do this in English. We kind of uh, make, sometimes mush these words together to, to make a point. And you could almost say that this is a, apart from law righteousness. Right? Well, what kind of righteousness is it apart from law righteousness? That's the kind of righteousness that Paul's talking about. It's kind of like a, and, and even that, the Greek is even more direct. It basically says, not law righteousness. It's a no law righteousness. And that just doesn't make sense to us because what do we constantly do in life? I think most of us spend a vast majority of our time trying to figure out what the rules are and deciding whether we want to follow them or break them and then doing the best to kind of like move up or down the ladder of life based on how we think we're doing compared to everyone else breaking or following those rules. That's how we view other people. Is this, it doesn't, you don't have to be a believer or a Christian for this. It's not a religious thing at all. It's a human thing. We either think we're more righteous than another person or we're less righteous than another person. Maybe on a rare occasion we found our compadre who's kind of at the same level, and maybe we feel good about that, but we spend a lot of time analyzing ourselves and others based on how they measure up to the rules and expectations of society, of our family, of God, of the church, of the government, of the education system, of TikTok, whatever it is. This is how we live. And Paul says now there's an apart from law righteousness. There's a no law righteousness. And it's been revealed by both the law and the prophets. He says the Old Testament proves it. And we missed it. We missed it. And he says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So it's an apart from law, through faith kind of righteousness. And we haven't seen anything like it in our lives except in Jesus Christ. And so even when we see it in Jesus Christ, we often mistake it for the old kind of righteousness. Paul talks in the book of Galatians like this. He says, uh, he he talks about uh, how the Galatians began their life with Jesus through faith. And then they tried to switch over in their life with Jesus by following the law. And you know what he calls them? Fools. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you start with the Spirit and then essentially switch over to the law? Switch over to works. It's foolishness. And yet, have we not all done it? We wouldn't say this out loud, but this is how we live sometimes as believers. Oh, I was a sinner. Jesus saved me from my sin. And now I walk with Jesus. It's kind of like, I needed salvation before, and then I found it in Jesus, praise the Lord, and then now, I'm kind of doing my walk, and I'm doing my thing, and I am trying to, to essentially live up to everything that was promised to me way back then. But the message of Scripture is that I was a sinner, and praise the Lord, Jesus saved me from my sin. I am a sinner, and praise the Lord, Jesus is still saving my, me from my sin. And until the day I die, I will be a sinner, and praise the Lord, Jesus is saving me from my sin. And not only that, but when I try to have that through-the-law righteousness, that's the thing that bumps me out of relationship with Jesus. Because when I'm trusting in Him, we're tight. But when I'm trusting myself, it's not that Jesus left me. It's that I kind of was like, all right, I got it from here, God. Right? I got it from here. He says, "This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ." And that word "given" also is just—it um, is kind of like no charge, free. Sometimes it's translated as a free gift, right? And then, and even this idea of—sorry, um, collect my thought. Yeah, so this, this idea of that it's done almost, almost for no reason. Almost for no reason. Is that it's not done because you're good. It's not done because I'm good. Um, it's not done because um, there's something in you that God sees. And he's like, okay, I'm going to give this person this righteousness. And I'm not going to give it to them because I don't see that thing in them. It's the same word that uh, in John fifteen twenty five. I will just read this to you real quick. And this is Jesus says, but this is to feel, fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. They hated me freely. Right? It's the same word. Like for no reason whatsoever. God just gives it to you. It's just a free gift. You don't earn it. You just have it. And if you didn't earn it when he gave it to you in the beginning, then you don't have to earn it when he gives it to you later on in the present. And you don't have to earn it when he gives it to you in the future. It's really this free gift And I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that hates that. Because I want to be able to stand before you and let you know that I earned it. Whatever gifts I have, I am the one who kind of developed them, put them all together. I'm the one who worked hard to make it happen. I'm the one who took advantage of opportunities. I'm the one who... Who essentially developed myself to have whatever gifts I might have, including my righteousness. So if you see anything good in my life, please know I have done a great job. Right? And it, again, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about the church or whether we're talking about um, the educational system, you know, whether we're talking about our work. We want to be recognized for the good things we've done. But Paul's saying, you you can't. You can't earn this one. It's impossible. He goes on to say, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let's unpack that a little bit. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believes. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely, freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ. Let's not go on. Let's stop there. What Paul is saying here is that is that we all stand before God exactly the same way in our sinfulness, and we all stand before God exactly the same way in our righteousness. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all of us have been justified freely. That's actually that word that was in John 15. Without cause, without reason, totally free. And the thing is, when we hear that, there is a part of us that resists it. And when we resist it, it leads to very specific things. And I wonder if you might recognize yourself in anything on this list. When we fail to recognize that we all stand equal in our sin and we all stand equally in our freely given salvation, we begin to experience this a thing that we talked about a few weeks ago, self righteousness, and we become judgmental. You know, it looks like the um, the little old the little old lady in church. I'm not picking on little old ladies. Just you know, just an example. You know, the little old lady in church. She's so sweet and kind and caring until someone that she deems to be impure comes into the room, and then she gets stiff and brittle and coarse and harsh, right? I think we've all, it doesn't have to be an old lady, it could be anyone. Yeah, it's, um, it's the parent, the parent who um, is concerned about all their kids' relationships because surely all these other kids are going to be a bad influence on my kid. And there's no conceivable way that my kids could be a bad influence on theirs. Right, it's the it's the religious person, the religious person who uh, talks to someone who's not a believer and gives the implication that you know how bad your life is now. Well, if you trust Jesus, your life can be great like mine. We've all seen it. We've all heard it. A lot of us have done it, sometimes unintentionally. Right, and it's this idea where we can kind of look around even our own church and again we probably don't do this consciously but we kind of know where different people stand right oh that's that's one of the good ones oh this person's just scraping by oh that oh probably oh, that person needs Jesus <laughs> if you've ever heard have you ever heard someone say that person needs Jesus what is the implication but i don't This is what Jesus talks about when he talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector who are going to pray. And the Pharisee says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And the tax collector says, Lord, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, the tax collector walked away justified. Right? Justified freely by grace. Not because of what he has done, but because he doesn't think himself too good to receive what he needs from the Lord. Uh, when we have an idea that we somehow are not identical in our sinfulness and identical in freely receiving the grace of God, we become exclusive people. And again, we might give good lip service to the idea that we need to reach out and uh, you know, bring others in and invite other people. But it was interesting, you know, I'm, I'm kinda of tattling a little bit, I guess. We were at a conference this weekend. Uh by the way, it was the conference that we advertised here, it was amazing, it was fantastic. Um I don't know if they recorded it, but if they did I'll let you know. It's just who went who went to that was it great? It was fantastic. We got some books um that are that are that we have available for the church and everything. Uh, But there was a question time, and there were two questions throughout that time, and one of them was something like, you know, if if we invite, and the language was just a dead giveaway, it was like, if we invite those people into our church, how will we remain strong and remain pure? Those words weren't used, but that was essentially the question. And that question is based on the idea, the thinking that somehow, We are better than them, whoever we are and whoever they are. Right? It's so easy for this to creep in. Uh, One of the things that happens when you have this attitude is that the power of the gospel can reach your head, but it can never reach your heart. Because on some level, and, and I've shared this story with you. When I was a kid, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I got baptized. I grew up in the church. But I remember thinking, you know, and again, I was a little kid, so I hadn't done much yet out, you know, actively in sin. I had a wonderfully wretched heart. But actively, I hadn't done much yet. I hadn't, I hadn't lived up to my full potential as a sinner at that point. But I remember thinking, I'm so grateful Jesus died for my sin, but I'm also glad that, at least for me, he didn't have a whole lot to die for. Now, that's a seven year old, okay? But I know plenty of 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 year olds who essentially think the same thing. At least he didn't have to die for too much for me. At least my sins aren't as bad. And my goodness, off the tip of our tongue, we could list all the sins that we haven't done. Right? And we each have a different list. And somehow or another, it's the weirdest thing, our list is not the same as God's list. It's like we have our own special list that's exclusively made up of things that, coincidentally, we haven't done. We think, oh, well, that's what righteousness looks like. Uh, I don't want to offend anyone, so I'm going to do my best not to. (laughs) I've never murdered people. If you have murdered people, there's grace for you, and God is good. But it's kind of like, oh, I've never murdered people. By the way, Jesus heard that one. That's why he said, you say you haven't committed murder, but you commit murder in your heart because you hate your brother. Uh, you might say, well, I've never, I've never cheated on my spouse. Jesus is like, oh, I've heard that one too. Turns out you have in your heart. Maybe not just in your heart. Uh, that we, we can, it's kind of like, oh, we, we look at these, oh, these are the bad ones. I haven't done the bad ones. It's funny, though, in Scripture, you know, murder is on the same list as Gossip. Adultery is on the same list, list as envy and pride. But when you think that you're different, then the goodness of the gospel eludes you. Because you're like, oh, I can see how Jesus was really great for those people, but he wasn't that great for me. I mean, he w- it's kind of like he was dying anyway. He was already on the way, so why couldn't he pick up something for me at the store? It's just kind of like a crazy way of thinking about it. He was going to do it anyway, so at least my few sins were covered in that. And then it keeps us from having a real sense of God's love and grace. Now, as I was kind of working on this list, and I had a little help. I have this wonderful uh, book that I'm also reading about Romans as we go through this. This, one of the things that hit me really hard was that never reaching the heart. And I'm not going to say that the gospel didn't reach my heart in any way, but I know that for me, when I got older and was more aware of my own, I'm going to use another loaded theological term, my own depravity. When I realized just how far I could fall into sin and just how far my attitude could be that from the attitude of Christ. I became more grateful for the Gospel than I was before. And I am certain that I still have yet to understand the total depth of my own heart's ability to sin. And I'm in Christ. This is astounding, folks. Even those of us who have the Holy Spirit will be surprised at our ability to sin. What does that tell us? At the end of the day, what this does is it allows us in our own mind to exalt in what we have done over what Christ has done. Oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but I'm actually a pretty good guy. Jesus died on the cross, but have you seen my accolades, whatever they might be? Either the things I haven't done or the things I have done. Part of the break or part of what breaks this mentality is something that we've been working on as a church. You know, whenever if you've ever been in a meeting here, like a small group meeting, or if you've done Church 101, or if you even have come to a prayer night, a lot of times what we do right at the beginning is we do this thing called checking in. Checking in. And we just, show, we just share kind of how we're showing up. And we name, we put a name on the emotions that we're feeling as we show up. Okay, well, Pastor, what does this have to do with being a sinner before Jesus Christ? Okay. When you show up angry or sad or hurt or lonely, when you show up, Feeling shame and guilt. Right? What you're doing is you're displaying before that other person or that group, you're displaying your weakness. Because no one wants to feel those things in front of someone else. Right? We all want to show up happy. Shiny, happy people holding hands, right? That's how we want to show up. And what the gospel does, the gospel says, no, you don't have to show up like that because everyone around you is equally as sinful as you are and everyone around you is equally saved by grace as you are. And so you can show up honest and vulnerable and weak and needy because that's what that is, and it's okay. And as you continue to show up weak and vulnerable and needy before others, then you can remember what it was like to show up weak and vulnerable and needy before God. Because often what happens is we build these things up over time. And it's almost a truism that the longer you're in the church without actively fighting these things, the more self-righteous you become. It's almost like the church, absent intentional active process of fighting it a church is a breeding ground for judgmentalism and self-righteousness the church is a breeding ground for getting people to engage with the truths of the gospel with their heads and not with their hearts we've all seen this haven't we amen anyone i want to hear the amens from the people at home like we should be like amen And then look, in the middle of all this, when you are most vulnerable before others, what inevitably shows up for you? Grace. Grace. This is what grace is. Um, Part of the conference yesterday was just about seeing how the secular world, the, the non, not just non-Christian, but the non-religious world, where, those, where these ideas lead to in terms of how you view society. And one of the points that uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, McLaughlin was making was that all of our virtues and understanding of human rights and equality of men and women and racial equality, all that stuff is all founded in the ideas of Christianity, Judeo-Christian teaching. Without... God making us all in his image. There's no gender equality. There's no racial equality. There's no value of human life. None of that without God making us male and female in his image. And I would, I would add that's what's uniquely Christian is that this idea that we all come equally sinful, equally broken, but we all come equally um, able to receive this gift of, Of righteousness through the grace of God and by faith in Jesus Christ and what that says is that um, when you see someone's weakness because what is what if we only had nature and no revelation what would be the appropriate thing to do when you recognize someone's weakness you should attack it and take advantage of it that's what the animal kingdom teaches us right what which of the which of the gazelles does the do leopards eat gazelles which of the gazelles do the leopards eat the sick the weak the wounded the old and the young why because they're weak they're slower they can't get away you don't go after the strong you go after the weak and we see this play out in the human realm over and over and over again it is natural for humans to prey upon the weak it is only by the, the example of Jesus Christ that the strong give grace to the weak. Only the example of Jesus Christ. There, there's, nothing in, there's nothing in nature that would give us this idea. It's only from Revelation. And so when you show up weak and you're received with grace, then it teaches you how to receive the gospel afresh and anew, day by day in your life. This is why we do stuff like that here at church. Because it's actually gospel enactment over and over and over again. Because honestly, folks, you could go your whole life hearing the gospel and it only staying here. But as you daily live the gospel, it moves here. Now Paul says this, We are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Man, that is a thick, thick sentence. To be justified does not mean that you're proven to be righteous. It doesn't even mean that you're made righteous It means that you're declared righteous. This is one of those legal terms. When the judge says not guilty, he's not making you less guilty than you were before he spoke those words. Right? And legally speaking, he's not even just noticing that you're not guilty. Because guilty people are declared not guilty And innocent people are declared guilty, not irregularly, right? From a legal sense, it's the declaration of the guilt or the lack of guilt that matters in the courtroom, right? This is what determines whether you go to jail or whether you go free. So when the judge says not guilty, he is declaring that you are not guilty. And when Jesus justifies you, he is declaring that you are righteous, you don't automatically become perfect. It's not that he sees how great you are. Oh, you know, there's Stephen. He's a great one. I'm going to declare him righteous. No. No. He, he's simply saying, again, freely, without, without, uh, without reason, without justification. That's what that word freely means, again. He's declaring me righteous without justification simply because of his grace. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now, what is redemption? Redemption is when you buy back something. Right? The only thing that I can think of in our culture that we redeem are coupons and tickets. Right? So, you've got a coupon, or a coupon, if you will. And you take it to the store, and it says 30 cents off. And when you go to pay, they take off the 30 cents, and you have to give them the coupon. You go to the fair, and you have a ride, four tickets. You give them four tickets, you get on the ride. Right? It's a purchase agreement. In this case, it is purchasing back that which has been lost. And do you know what in the Old Testament, what's required to purchase back, to redeem something that's, that's been given away? It's the full value plus 20%. Full value plus 20%. You have to pay more than the value to get the thing back. Now, why is that important? Because the Bible teaches clearly that no person can redeem another person. The cost is too great. We read this in Psalm 49. I'll just read it to you. No one can redeem the life of another. This is verse 7 of Psalm 49. Or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is too costly. No payment is ever enough. So that they should live on forever and not see decay. Why can you not pay for the life of another? Because we're all equal in value. And the redemption price is the cost plus 20%. So you don't have enough. However much you have, it's 20% too little. But who is worth more than you and I are worth? Who is worth so much that his life covers the price of every single life plus the extra? Jesus Christ. And why? Because he is the infinite God of the universe. His value, the value placed on his life is infinite. And therefore, it is capable of redeeming every single soul. And again, not on the basis of your character. Not on the basis of your actions. Not on the basis of your future actions. Not on the basis of your potential In fact, the only thing God bases this on is your complete and utter weakness and need. Because here's the really crazy part about this, and next week we're going to see it in in sharp focus, is that your sinfulness and God's gift of righteousness are intrinsically connected. God doesn't come to heal the healthy. He comes to heal the sick. God doesn't come to save the righteous. He comes to save the sinners. God's gift of righteousness is necessitated upon your sinfulness. So it's nothing you've done. And honestly, again, that drives me nuts. I don't like that. Because then to stand up and say that I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, is to acknowledge that I am totally incapable of doing anything that God required of me. It's the ultimate confession of weakness and vulnerability. I completely understand why the world looks at Christians and think that we think we're all better than all of them. I get that because of all the reasons that we said before, self-righteous, judgmental, exclusive, right, all that stuff. In actual fact, to be a Christian is to acknowledge that you are not better than anyone. And here's the other thing. God didn't just do it for you. I know what the song says. Crucified, laid behind a stone. He lived to die, desperate and alone. I forgot the next line. Like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fall and thought of me above all. I get it. It's a great song. We sing it. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And God was thinking of you and me when he did that. But Paul then tells us right here why he did it. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That word propitiation is the word that is translated sacrifice of atonement. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation is... um, is simply that. It's, it's, it's a sacrifice that's given essentially to qualify for the penalty that God would have. We don't like this because it involves God's wrath. So a propitiation is a sacrifice that's given to assuage the wrath of God. And we think, oh, that, that doesn't sit right because God's loving and God's gracious and we don't need this. But actually, if we just read the last couple of chapters, we know that God has a lot of wrath. Justifiably. And it's not like uh, he's, he's up in heaven, kind of, um, well, if that person doesn't give me what I want, I'm going to pour out my wrath. You know, this is, that's the idea of, like, Zeus, right? Uh, you know, like, uh, in ancient, well, maybe it's still, I guess it still happens in certain religions today, like, you take food and fruit to the gods so that he won't be angry at you. Right? I went, I went to visit China and, and there was a Buddhist temple and there was fruit in the Buddhist temple. And they were like, oh, these are the sacrifice. These are the offerings that people are making to assuage the, the anger of, I'm not exactly sure who. Not Buddha, right? I don't know. It's there. But this is like an old, old thing common to religions. But it's not some arbitrary thing like, oh, uh, I'm going to be mean to you, but if you give me what I want, then I'll go away like it's a bribe. No, this is God saying there is justifiable wrath that has been stored up. And because I'm gracious. I'm going to provide the sacrifice that assuages the wrath that I have. And it's going to be my own son. And Jesus isn't some victim of, I've heard this before, he's not a victim of some cosmic child abuse. When, God's, when God, you know, because when we say God, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is God too. And when we say God decided to, to uh, bring the offering that assuages his own wrath, Jesus was kind of like they saying, I sign up. Hey, Dad, Dad, I'll do it. And why? Well, partly because, yeah, he loves you and he loves me. And partly because he did this. This is still in verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. His faithfulness to us in covenantal relationship. God did it to show how great he is. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So we said that God is gracious, but we also know that God is just. God is holy. So if God doesn't punish sins, then what is the accusation against God? That's not fair. Why do you punish some sins and not others? Why do you, how can you not punish sins at all? it wouldn't even be fair i mean let's be honest it wouldn't be fair if god didn't punish any sins that would also be unfair and by the way again like we don't think like this it's very much in the modern western world but i think we can understand it a little bit now more but if you are the, if you are the victim of someone either personally or your family or nationally and that person does whatever they want to do with you, and then no one ever holds them to account, would you be totally fine saying, oh, well, they're being gracious? Not at all. You'd say, that's not right. That's wrong. That's evil. That's evil. Nations who commit and have committed genocide and never held to account, that's evil. You can draw your own conclusions about the many, 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 many nations that have done that. People who drag others into all sorts of slavery, sexual slavery, um, all types of oppression, and they do that and never are held to account, that's evil. Paul says, well, God did this to show his own righteousness. He had left some of the sins beforehand unpunished. Well, who's going to pay the price for those sins? And God says, I am. Including your own. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness as the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God's saying I can be just and gracious at the exact same time and the only way to do it is that if I pay the penalty for the sins that have been committed. And I do it yes because I love you but also because I am worth. I'm worth showing you how great I am. And again, ah, oh, if I said that, I'd be a jerk. But when God says it like what else could he do? What's the greatest thing God can promote in the universe? Himself. What's the greatest gift God can give you ever? Himself. Who's the standard of righteousness and holiness for, for the Lord? Himself. Right? It's all these things. So, God, by grace, offers the sacrifice that assuages His own wrath, at the cost of the life of Jesus for his own sake. God does everything. Everything. I don't know if you can read that, but Second Timothy one says He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own. Purpose and grace. His own purpose. Yes, for you. I'm not stealing that from you. But even more than for you, He did it for Himself. And there's no other being in the universe that would be more worthy of Him doing it for than Himself. And this grace was given us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time. God had planned this before creating us. Before the world existed, God planned for this. That's why He could show forbearance when David sleeps with Bathsheba, kills her husband, and there's no sacrifice for him. That's why Jacob can be a scoundrel and God can bless him over and over and over again. And, friends... That's why you and I were not obliterated the day we were born because of our sinful hearts. Forbearance of God for his own purpose. Well, if that's the case, then what is true? And remember, our sermon series is entitled, Accept One Another. (laughs) Why is Paul giving us this theology lesson? Because I paid a lot of money to go to two different schools to get theology lessons. And their reason for giving me those theology lessons was that I would know theology. But Paul doesn't give you theology lessons so you'll know theology. Paul gives you theology lessons so you'll follow Jesus. Right? If this is true, then there is no room for boasting In the Christian life. Look at what he says. 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith. Meaning declared righteous by faith. And faith, remember, is that love commitment. That love commitment to Jesus Christ. Apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Remember, there's this conflict, tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And the Jewish Christians say, hey, well, we've got the law, so we're special. And the Gentile Christians are like, nuh-uh. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, Jews and Gentiles alike. Remember, there is no difference. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. We're going to explore that piece of that last verse in more detail later. There's no room for it today. Well, look. The reality is the very one who was sinned against by you and me is the one who paid the price for our sin through blood, meaning through death. Therefore, if God accepts you like that, how could you not accept anyone who God has already accepted? Now I want you to close your eyes for a minute and do not look at anyone in this room. <laughs> There's probably someone who's a believer in Christ that you're having a tough time with right now. And I want you to think about the fact for one moment that whatever they have done that bothers you is nothing compared to what you have done to the Lord. And the suffering that you've had because of what they've done for you is nothing compared to the suffering that Christ has done for you. You can open your eyes. Don't look at anyone. <laughs> this is why Jesus tells the story of the debtor who is freed of a massive debt and then turns around and throws into jail the person who owed him a small debt. Because the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel, and the, which are very much stories, And the teachings of Paul in the letters, which are very dense and theologically complex, they're the same message. So we must pay whatever price we need to pay to be able to receive others in fellowship. Because God has paid the ultimate price so that we could be in fellowship with him. So that's my takeaway. Because we are all equal before God in our sin and our reception of grace, we can lovingly commit ourselves to the gospel by trusting Jesus' sacrifice and recklessly loving others. That's not a bumper sticker, right? It's too long for that. Paul made the bumper sticker in Romans 15, verse 7. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Now, there's so much more than just that, too, because I'm hoping right now there's a part of you inside that is leaping for joy, that the grace of God has come to you, a wretched sinner. And I hope there's some part of you that's getting hope for the idea that you can be vulnerable, real, honest, and weak before others without being uh, culled from the herd, so to speak, but rather that you would be received with grace because if I've been given grace and you've been given grace, then when I show up weak, then I can receive grace from you. And when you show up weak, I can give you grace. And then I hope that part of you is thinking, oh, there's this person I've been judging And looking down upon, but now I realize what I'm, what I get to do because of Jesus is receive them in love, and put behind us. Maybe not. Maybe maybe it doesn't mean that you know if a person's harming you, it doesn't mean you have to go and be harmed again. It doesn't mean that. Although sometimes Christians do that, and it's powerful when they do, by choice. But it certainly can mean that you can rest. uh, You can put your resentment and your Um, your judgment to rest. And they can simply be a brother and sister in Christ who is equally in need of grace as you are and who one day you will stand side by side equally restored by grace in the kingdom. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Well, Lord just for me I see so much of what you're trying to teach us not to be I see so much of that in myself and I thank you that today as I see that in myself it doesn't drive me to shame as it could but it drives me deeper into your arms and into the gospel or it drives me deeper to grace I pray that would be true for all of us. That when the mirror is raised up to us, Lord, that we would look look clearly at it and see what we need to see